Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 12. And you can find that in the Black Pew Bibles in front of you on page 54 if you don't have a Bible with you. But if you are willing and able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter 12, verses 29 to 42. Listen to God's word. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead, Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves." At the time, at the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Every breath you take and every move you make, every bond you break, every step you take, I'll be watching you. So begins a song by the legendary 80s rock band that is ironically called The Police. Considered one of the top 100 songs of all time, many consider it a gentle little love song about the watchful care of one over another. But upon examination of its lyrics, it most certainly seems to be the obsessive watchfulness of a stalker a song of surveillance and twisted jealousy. 
You see, watchfulness can either be a blessing or a terror, depending on who is doing the watching and your relationship with that person. A mother watching over their children is a picture of love and protection, tenderness, care. But a soldier watching over the enemy is a picture of war and conflict. Our passage this morning is about watching. A watching of the Lord, by the Lord, and also a watching to the Lord. You see that in verse 42 of our passage this morning. The Passover night, the the night of the Exodus, was a night of watching by the Lord. It was a night above all else of the Lord's watchful care over his people. For Israel, it was a time of tenderness, of promises kept, and the goodness of a faithful God. Yet to others, it would be a time of grief and judgment, of promises kept concerning the wrath of God. And so this morning, what I want to do is simply to walk through this passage and see three evidences of God's watchful care over his people. Then we will finish by briefly looking at their response and our response to God's watching over us. So first evidence of God's watching care in this passage, God provides a substitute in judgment. God provides a substitute in judgment. The plagues against Egypt have been devastating. They've been pretty brutal, relentless, nine of them, one after another falling upon the land, and it's left the nation in ruins. It's left their economy in shambles. It's left them devastated physically, spiritually. And now, finally, 400 years of oppression come to an end this night on this 10th and final plague. It says in verse 40 and 41 that God's people were in Egypt for 430 years, even though elsewhere in Scripture it sometimes says 430 and sometimes it says 400 years of bondage. Now, this may simply be a rounding issue because sometimes the Scriptures will do that. They'll just round a number. But most likely, if we read the scriptures carefully, we realize that the smaller number, 400, refers to the period of servitude, of slavery, that began some 30 years after Jacob and his descendants went into into Egypt. So whether you're using 400 or 430, you'll see in the Bible, both appear correct as a way to describe Israel's time in Egypt. What's important to note, however, is that Israel has been crying out, essentially, for a very, very long time. A long time. Back in chapter 3, verse 7, it says that Israel has been crying out because of their taskmasters that were over them. And they're suffering. Well, this night, with this final plague, there will be a great cry, it says there, in verse 30, that would rise up from in the land, but this time from the Egyptians. Same word being used in both places. 
This 10th plague is the most devastating, and it was foretold by Moses back in chapter 11, and you can be sure that word got out throughout the land. Word had gone out about the previous plagues, and some people kind of heeded what Moses had to say, but those in Pharaoh's court certainly heard about it. We can imagine the news about another plague coming, spreading across the countryside of Egypt. Perhaps even if some of the Egyptians were in eyeshot of some uh, Israelite household, they might see them doing a very strange thing in the middle of the night. Slaughtering lambs and putting blood on their doorposts. Perhaps some of the Egyptians didn't believe Moses' warning, and they'll think, okay, frogs and mosquitoes and hail and, and darkness, this is just some... Something seasonal, something's wacky with the weather. This is all about climate change or whatever they might put it, attribute it to. But maybe some wondered if they should believe it. Some had responded previously to Moses' warnings. Maybe parents went to bed fearful. They got up in shifts during the night because they had heard that their firstborn might die. And parents probably didn't sleep at all that night checking on their children, making sure they were still breathing. And then midnight comes, sometime around midnight, and there's a cry as a parent finds their child dead. Or perhaps a cry from a child as they find that their parent or their grandparent, also a firstborn, is dead. And the wailing in one house wakes up the next, as each family checks on the firstborn, and there is this slow, steady domino of dirges that kind of emanate and fill the land of Egypt. God does exactly as he said he would. Judgment falls upon the land from the firstborn, it says there in our text, of, the throne, of those who sit on the throne of Pharaoh to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. One commentator writes, nobody in Egypt escapes the wrath of Yahweh. It cuts a swath of destruction from the palace to the pits. Judgment for 400 years of oppression. Judgment upon Pharaoh and his people for their slaughter of innocents. And like we, like we mentioned last week, God is no respecter of persons, meaning... He will not give you safe passage because you are rich and well off. And he will not give you safe passage if you are poor and destitute. When it comes to the judgment of God, your privilege and your position won't save you. And when it comes to the judgment of God, he won't spare you because you are despised and destitute. Some of us deep down are prone to think one way or another. We kind of think, hey, I've, you know, I'm doing a pretty good job. I've tried pretty hard to live in the right way, do the right things. I've, you know, I provide for my family. I, I take them to church, but that will not save you. And others are tempted to think, well, life has been really hard for me. It's been tough. You don't know what I've overcome. You don't know my family background. You don't know how I've been sick and all the health issues that I've had to overcome. And God will one day cut me a big break. 
but that will not save you. No, from the palace to the pits, the firstborn in every household was dead. Even Pharaoh, who thought he could somehow be insulated, is afflicted, is forced to bow the knee for all his hardness of heart. It brought him nothing. He sends a message to Moses and Aaron that very, that very evening. He says, up, go out, be gone. That's what he says to him. When I was reading through it, it kind of reminded me of this children's book by Dr. Seuss in which the narrator tries to get Marvin K. Mooney to leave the room. So finally, in exasperation, the narrator says, Marvin K. Mooney, I don't care how. Marvin K. Mooney, will you please go now? I said go, and go I meant, and this is kind of the summary, kind of dismissal that Pharaoh gives Moses. Go up, get out. But then he tacks on at the very end what? Bless me also. It's unclear what Pharaoh's asking for. I don't know if he's asking for, hey, uh, maybe bring my son back to life. Or perhaps some payback for releasing the Hebrews or some assurance that things would be okay. But one thing is clear. Pharaoh wanted a blessing, but not salvation. He wanted a prosperity gospel and not a true gospel. Because it's always easier to ask for a blessing, isn't it? than for forgiveness. Pharaoh could have, could never quite ask for forgiveness. Moses, pray for me. Moses, bless me. But not Moses or not Yahweh, forgive me. Forgiveness was a whole nother matter for him. He was broken but not repentant. There was no ultimate surrender to the Lord, not in his heart, because that night, from the palace to the pits, judgment comes. Now surely you can see, and I hope that you can feel the connection with your own life, because there is an even more cataclysmic judgment that is coming. You can ask for prayer, you can ask to be blessed, you can be rich or poor, you can be young or old. But you will not pass through the night safe and secure without the blood. You see, the destroyer passed through the camp of everyone that night. And he wasn't looking, or this, this angel of the Lord, perhaps, was not looking for any particular race. Was not looking to see what you've done with your life. Was not looking to see if you've handled whatever was dealt to you in your life, if you've done that well. He was looking for one thing, the blood. Not just the blood itself, but what it represented. The faith to put your trust in a substitute. The faith to put your trust in a substitute. It took faith to hear what God had to say, take him at his word, and then act. To say, my only hope is to be spared from death this night is to have one die in my place and to have that substitute hang over my household. We see here God's great mercy. He was watching over his people, passing over them by providing a substitute for their sins. And while he was in watching care for those who trusted him, he was in watching judgment against those who remained hard-hearted. I wonder if that is any of you this morning. Whether you're a child 
or you're an adult. Do some of you this morning remain hard-hearted against God? Do you think God will not see all the ways in which you've resisted him, all the ways you've ignored him? Do you think, I have time, I have time to make my decision about God? And I'm sure many children thought that way. And many adults felt that, felt that way that evening in Egypt. The good news is that God provides a substitute, his son, Jesus Christ. He is watching over you right now because he has placed you right here in the hearing of his word. And he's saying, there is a substitute. There is a way. You're listening. God says, even though judgment is coming for you, even though you are a sinner in his love, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be your substitute Jesus, who became a man and lived a perfect life and died on the cross, taking the punishment you deserve, he is the ultimate substitute who died and rose again so that what? Judgment will pass over you. If you would only turn and trust in him. Repent and place your trust in Jesus today. Come out from under the watching eye of God and come in to the watchful care of God. First evidence of God's watching care, he provides a substitute. Second evidence of God's watching care, God provides a blessing from the Egyptians. God provides a blessing from the Egyptians in verses 33 through 36. Instead of Moses blessing Pharaoh, the Egyptians bless Israel. The Egyptians are eager to have the Hebrew slaves leave. They don't want to have anything more to do with Israel. They aren't going to risk any more fatal consequences of having them around. And so they're saying, they're saying, go, go. So the Egyptians thrust the people out in haste with kneading bowls bundled up and unleavened bread in their pockets. But see how the Hebrews plunder the Egyptians. They receive silver and gold and jewelry. This is not stealing. Uh, the Israelites aren't going around and in the middle of the night looting and taking what's theirs in some triumphant way. Rather, it says in verse 36, the Lord, this is the Lord's doing. God causes the people of Israel, um, the people of Egypt, to think, favor, to, to think favorably of Israel, to be favorably disposed to them and give them what they asked for. Now, why would God want them to have this wealth. Why would God want them to have this gold and silver and fine clothes? I mean, is it evidence that, you know, God wants us to be prosperous, you know, have nice clothes and self-driving oxen and nice tents? I don't know. Or is it some sort of reparations, restitution, payback for the years of slavery? Well, one of the reasons God does this is because he is looking after and caring for his people. Even before they set out on their journey. Look at verse 39. What does it say? They could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. They were being thrust out that very evening. Now, I don't know about you, but when my family goes for just a weekend jaunt to some, somewhere, three-day trip, it takes us three days to pack beforehand. And here, they had been living in the land for 430 years, and they had to go in an instant that evening. 
But you see how God was preparing and, and providing for them. Here are millions of peoples that are going to travel through the wilderness. They're going to go into Canaan, and they're not going to have anything with them. And they need to be able to buy supplies from traders and other local settlements. They don't have great wealth or money. They don't have any savings. No 401k, no IRA. Where would it all come from? The answer, the Egyptians. Now, there is an interesting story later on in history, a story recounted in the Jewish Talmud of how the Egyptians take the Jews to court over this matter. There is some uh, doubt as to its historical reliability, but the Talmud says that in 340 B.C., when Alexander the Great comes on the scene and takes over the known world, the Egyptian representative lodges a claim against the nation of Israel. They say, hey, you took all our gold and silver and jewelry and we want it back. And the Jewish representative supposedly said this, what's your source of, of you know, us taking all this? And they said, the Torah, your scriptures. And he said, okay, very well. I too will invoke the Torah, which says that Jews spent 430 years laboring in Egypt. Please compensate us for 600,000 men's work that, during that period of time. And then the case was dropped. But we're not to think of this as reparation so that Israel could rebuild their lives somehow. This is freely given gold and silver for worship, actually. Isn't that the real reason they have all this? Later in Exodus, the Israelites will do two things with these gifts of precious metals and fabrics. Either they will give gold and silver and fabrics as an offering to help build the tabernacle in chapter 25, or they will take all those things and rebel and build the golden calf in chapter 32. And God provides a blessing, and when, and when used in obedience to God, it is, a, it is a new beginning. But when used in disregard of God, they serve to perpetuate the old past with its idolatry and oppression. God gives us gifts, things we don't deserve, home, a job, various abilities that we have, intellect. He gives us gifts that we don't deserve, and it's not wrong to have those things, all these talents, silver or gold. But are you going to use it for God's purposes or for idolatry? And that's the question. But certainly we see here from our passage this morning is that God has a singular mercy in watching over his people that he provides such a blessing from the Egyptians. He provides everything they need for their pilgrimage and everything they need for their worship. Third and finally, God watches over his people by providing a community of promise. We've seen that God watches over his people by providing a sacrifice and a blessing. And now in verses 37 through 41, God provides a community. A community. Look at verses 37 through 39. This is the Exodus. Yeah, this is what the book is named after. And God sends them out as a great multitude from Ramesses to Succoth. That's the first leg of their journey. Now, Ramesses is prob probably like this, these storehouses that they built, referred to earlier in chapter 1. Uh, we're not quite sure exactly where Succoth is. It's, uh, I think you know, scholars think that it's probably... Um, this town or this area that's about 15 miles to the east of Goshen. Look at verse 37. It says that 600,000 men are on foot besides women and children. Now, some commentators argue about this figure. 
they wonder, how could Israel possibly have 600,000 men besides women and children? I mean, this puts the number of Israelites to near two and a half million people. I mean, that's an exorbitant number. How do you send two million people, over two million people, out in the middle of the night? Uh, One commentator estimates that when they traveled, they must have formed a column more than 10 miles long. It seems too fantastic and too incredible. So there's a couple proposals. One is that the numbers are symbolic. It It is a purposeful exaggeration to express fruitfulness and multiplication by the people of Israel. And others will say that the word for thousand, which is the word elef there uh, in Hebrew, can actually be translated as clans or divisions or fighting units. So it's with each uh, fighting unit being about 12 people, you're really dealing with 7,000 people in the army. So you have about 30,000 people in total who left in the Exodus. But here's why I think we should stick to the 600,000 number because it is likely a round figure for the total. Later in Exodus 38, 26, it says there are 603,550 men. Sounds like 600,000 to me. I mean, that's a very, very specific number, isn't it? It's clearly a real figure. And then later on, that exact number is corroborated when Moses takes a census of the people in the book of Numbers, in chapter 1. 600. 1,603,550. So there are just about 600,000 men. So we conclude that certainly that this is, a, this is that big of a departing body of Israelites. Chapter 1 says that the people were, were fruitful and they multiplied greatly, increased greatly, so strong and the land was so filled with them that the Pharaoh was fearful of them. You think fear, Pharaoh was fearful of 30,000 people? Indeed, with the Lord's help, the population can grow from just 1,000 to, to these, this million size. The global growth rate peaked in 1963 at 2.2% per year. And so that rate would be, and plus with the help of God, that rate would be more than enough to get to this high number after 430 years. What's more, we see in verse 38 that it says a mixed multitude went up with them. Somehow in the midst of all these plagues, there were some Egyptians, certainly some Cushites, and maybe other people from neighboring lands. Leviticus 24, we, we read about an Israelite woman who has a son and that, whose father was an Egyptian. Uh, later on in Numbers 12, it tells of Moses remarrying to a Cushite after Zipporah dies. Moses records in Numbers 11.4 the riffraff or rabble among the people of Israel. Now, we can't be certain what this mixed multitude believed. We don't know if they trusted in Yahweh. Uh, It doesn't say their reasons for identifying with God's people. Perhaps some wanted to just simply escape their own oppression in Egypt. Perhaps they simply thought, I don't know, but I'm out of here, you know? Or perhaps they just got this sense that these Hebrews served a completely different God, and they want to be a part of that, like Ruth, who said, where you go, I will go. Where you go, I will go. Your God, my God. But the point is not for us to get lost in all these details about numbers and all these other things, but rather to see God's watchfulness. He made them strong even when they were a subjected slave people. He preserves their number. And what we are meant to see here is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. 
the covenant that he made with Abraham. Earlier in Exodus 2, God heard their groaning and God remembered the covenant with Abraham. So what is this covenant? Turn to Genesis chapter 12. That's backwards in your Bible from where you are. Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. And see what the Lord says when he speaks to Abraham. Genesis 12, 2. I will make you, what? A great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who, cur- who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And then this, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what do we see rising out of Egypt? We see what? A great nation. A great nation. 600,000 fighting men, perhaps two and a half million Israelites, along with what? The families of the earth, the nations that they're to bless. You see, God is right on time. Look, uh, flip a couple chapters over to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, this is still God speaking to Abraham. He says this in 15, chapter 15, verse 13. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. This was the promise of God to Abraham long before they entered into Egypt. So if you turn back to Exodus 12. 430 years we see there in verse 40. 430 years and God is right on time with his schedule. You see, this departure that night is not a night in which the Hebrews exercised great bravado, like like there were this conquering army somehow. No, I think all that happens in silence. I think it's quiet. I think they're overawed, awestruck, because they had done absolutely nothing for their deliverance, for their salvation. This was a night of watching by the Lord. He is the one who is up all night keeping vigil. He was working the night shift of salvation in order to deliver his people from death. He provided a substitute, a blessing, a community. He is the heavenly shepherd keeping watch over his flocks by night. And how were the people of Israel to respond? Verse 42 says, so that this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord. It's a play on words. He's basically saying, just as God watched over you, so you are to watch for God. Not in the same sense of making sure God's okay, but the people of God are to watch and wait for God, to trust him and to live for him. Church, haven't you been the recipient of God's good watching care in the gospel? Haven't you been the recipient of the substitute that he provides? Haven't you been the recipient of great earthly blessings, but not only earthly blessings, but spiritual blessings? You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Peter reminds us what? That you have an inheritance that that is kept for you in heaven, that is undefiled, kept for you, unfading, imperishable. And you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you have been placed into a community. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
and I'm sure many of you can recall times when God has been watching over you. I'm sure there's many times when you can think of how God has arranged things purposely for you. And you can look back and think, the Lord gave us a great providence that day. Oh, I can't believe how the Lord protected us. Or even you, you might say, you know what? Things didn't get better. The danger didn't pass by. Yet I see even in that the Lord was watching over us. You have those stories because I've heard them. Stories of surgeries that were successful and surgeries that were not. Stories of babies being born only to die. Story of pregnancies you never thought would happen. So let us keep watching for God. What does that mean? Various scripture passages inform us that watchfulness to God is basically an attentiveness, a vigilance, an expectancy over our souls and for the Lord's, for what the Lord will do. Because watching is hard because it's easy to waver, isn't it? Suffering tempts us to become suspicious of his, unan- uh, of his governance. Unanswered prayer, we're like, are you sure God still cares? Chronic pain makes us skeptical whether he's really with us in the time of need. Watching is hard because when the days grow long, what? We doubt that God truly still loves us. So we must keep watch on our adversary. We must keep watch on our hearts and our doctrine. You must remind yourself that God, we've said it several times this morning, neither slumbers nor sleeps, even if you're getting sleepy now. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And he is never late. He will will supply every need of yours according to his riches in Christ Jesus. So let us keep watching, not because we know what he will do, but because we know what he has done. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give thanks to you, for you are a loving and caring God, a God that we can run to for refuge and we have seen so many evidences in our lives of your faithful care over us. But sometimes, Lord, we know that it is easy for us to forget. It is easy for us to forget that your faithfulness, we sing it all the time about your steadfast love endures forever, and yet it's, we need to remind us of that truth over and over again. Help us to be watchful, and eager not only for what you will do in this lifetime, but watchful and eager and look to the horizon for the day of your return when you will come and collect your people. We pray this in Jesus' name.